Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Castelli. I am Joe Robinson. I'm joined by James Spender. Good afternoon, Joe Robinson. And you are tuning in to part one of the Greg LeMond special. That's right. We recently sat down with one of the greatest riders in cycling history, the only man to have won a Tour de France after getting shot, to talk about everything from his new revolutionary bike brand to the use of motors in the professional peloton. And there were some bits about Laurent Fignon and the 1989 Tour in between too. So good was our chat with Greg. It ended up going on for over two hours and it could have gone on for longer as well. And because it was so enjoyable, we decided it best to just share the entire thing with you, but divide it into two parts. So on today's part one, we'll be focusing on Greg's new bike business, specifically his new road bike, which he claims utilises the biggest advancement in carbon fibre technology in 60 years. And in part two, when we will be talking about Greg's career, Bernard Hino, Laurent Fignon, the 89 Tour, and also the current peloton with his thoughts on the state of both biological and mechanical doping. But before we get to part one, how about some things we like and some things we don't like? James, uh, hit me with some stuff you like, hit me with some stuff you don't like, please. Uh, well, stuff that I don't like hit me. Um, a couple of days ago, <laughs> I went out for a lovely evening uh, slash night ride and I just didn't, I had a decent front light on, just didn't see this whacking great pothole, smashed into it, and it was like going over a stinger trap, you know, like on police camera action where they throw the stingers in front of the cars to... Um, Best bit of those Yeah, to those flatten shows, the tyres yeah. of the criminals, and it was just like, immediately, it was just like... Psh! And I've got to say this, right? So as a pinch flat, what got it? And in another lifetime, you and I may not be talking like this. I mean, I may be in hospital talking to you because I was riding on a tubeless tyre, and what a tubeless tyre doesn't do is go down as quickly as a pinch flat on a butyl tube, on a clincher tyre. Yeah. Uh, it also doesn't tend to smash the rim. And I was riding some really quite expensive wheels as well, so that was lucky because they're not mine. Um, and also the tyre doesn't then fall off when it's flat because it's really, really tight fit. So those sorts of things save me. Annoyingly, the pinch flat was such that it just wouldn't seal with the sealant. Um, okay. So I did have to go side of the road take off the tyre. The sealant, um, brilliantly, was Muckoff's uh, ultraviolet reflective sealant. So every time a car headlight hit me, it looked like I just exploded out of a 1980s rave because I was covered in this high-vis. Like, you, like you'd been climbed upon by some slugs. Yes, very much so. But anyway, and I stuck a tube in. All those people are like, what happens when tubers fails? It fails all the time. I put a tube in. I put a normal tube in and I rode home. It was absolutely fine. Even better than that, I put a regular uh, vulcanizing tire patch on the inside because it's only a tiny, tiny, tiny nick um, mm. in the sidewall that wouldn't seal. So not life-threatening. Put that on the sidewall. Boom. Job's a good one. I'm looking at the tire now. I was riding it the other day. It's back to full health. So happy with That's that. Uh, and that leads me into the things that I like, which are the wheels that I was riding. So yeah, luckily they came out on skates. So big points here for expensive wheels also being really well-made wheels because I really took a big hit. They're DT Swisses, you know, the ones um, with Swiss side, the aerodynamicist crew got involved with. So they're super fast, 50 mil. Swiss side is the best side, etc., etc. Swiss side is the best side. Their flag is a big plus. Um, it is just to steal that from Tim Vine. Um, and uh, yeah, they're 50 mil deep. 
and they only weigh 1,472 grams for the pair. So they're less than one and a half bags of sugar. Less than one and a half bags of sugar. And I tell you this, my friend, uh, buy the magazine because then you'll find out what bike I'm talking about. But I've got a test bike at the moment and I swapped the wheels that came on the test bike for these DT Swisses and I dropped nearly 1.3 kilos off the bike. So that speaks both to the ultimate lightness of the DT Swisses and also the heaviness of these other wheels. But yeah, pair of these DT Swiss wheels, 50mm deep, don't forget. 28 mil tires still and and the requisite sealant i weighed them comes out at 2092 grams for a wheel set that is just phenomenal and yes you pay pretty much a pound a gram they are about 2200 quid but you know anyway so that's me that's that's uh it's been a it's been a really good week um how about you what sort of things are you currently liking and you know what's what's just made you what's made you sad joe What's made you weep? Well, sun's out, isn't it, James? Sun's out at the moment. Spring has sprung. Um, so I'm actually riding outside Ooh. a little bit now. Um, and such is the nice weather for this time of year. I have dug out my old Perlazumi Elite Thermal Knee Warmers, a trusty set of knee warmers that I were first. I was first given by Perlazumi when I joined Cyclist Free. They, ev- they give ago. everyone knee warmers, don't um, they? Ceremony. They do. It's a, it's a hazing. <laughs> it's a form of hazing we all get. Um, but if anyone doesn't know, so the knee warmer was something that was invented by a Flandrian cycling legend, Edwig van Hooydonk in 1991. So van Hooydonk, who won two Tour of Flanders and famously was also 100% clean through his career, was one of the few riders at that period who was. Um, he had a few knee issues later on in his career and in 1991 was having to wear leg warmers a lot. Uh, to protect his knees but he found them too baggy so what he did being a smart Flandrian man and wanting to wear less because less is more he just took a pair of scissors to his leg warmers and made them into what we now know as knee warmers Um, and I believe knee warmers are the most gnarly Flandrian of all the cycling clothing and make you look particularly tough when you're riding and using them at this time of year Um, and these Perlajumi ones, for example, are only thirty nine ninety nine, and they're very comfortable. They're very warm and they're very waterproof, which is all you really need during spring, isn't it, James? It is all you really need during spring. Well, that's 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 lovely. So big big shout out to them. Big shout out to them. I've, I've you know they they've started to develop a little hole, but they are my trusty knee warmers, and I hope to own them for the rest of time. Um, something I'm not enjoying though, James, is Zwift cheats. So, as we all know, I've been racing on Zwift with a competitor's time trial, a uh, competitive magazine, that is, time trial every Wednesday. And it's got me fit. It's got me in a lot better shape than I was in the beginning of January. Um, but there's so many suspect performances on there. So I'm not a small guy, you know, I weigh 90 kilos. But I put out, like, you know, a fair amount of watts, like 300 watts average for, for a 10-mile time trial on there. And I do okay. But it's the amount of people that I'm getting beaten by who are doing sort of 200 watts and like three watts per kilo, which equates to a lot of people would be about three watts per kilo, which means they'd be about 66 kilos, which is fine, because I get some cyclists are quite light. But it's the fact that they're also like riding this 10 mile time trial with an average heart rate of like 110 <laughs> beats per minute, which is like the heart rate you'd get if you went for a walk, not if you're going full biscuit in a 10 mile TT. And I don't know. I keep looking at some of the results of other people that are beating me and I'm like, eh, this yeah. doesn't quite add up. 
Easy, it's easy to lie about your weight. I feel like there's a solution here, and it's another thing that someone like Wahoo could start selling. So now you can get the, um, I can't remember the name of the brand, but basically it's a saddle mapping service. So you sit down on a thing a bit like a saddle, and it maps the pressure points, and then you can work out how you're sitting on a bike, and you can even tailor saddles to it. Yeah, yeah. So something like that's essentially just a set of scales built into a saddle. So when you sit down, it weighs you. Yeah. And it knows there's no hiding. Like, because, you know, Garmin already makes scales that will Bluetooth data to Garmin Connect. Yeah. So that, that, you know, it's not exactly a leap of, it's not like going to Mars difficult to sort out, is it? We've already done that, actually. That's a great thing, isn't it? Going to Mars, perseverance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's probably... Just as a tangent. <laughs> and uh, there's probably less potholes on Mars than there was on the road that you uh, took that pinch flat on as well. Well, I'll tell you what, at the moment, after the frost, you're probably about right. So that is the, that is, you know, let's both welcome that good weather in because I'm sick of riding. <laughs> I'm sick of riding at five and it's suddenly dark still. Listeners, what a special treat we have for you. On today's show, we have a three-time Tour de France winner, a two-time road race world champion, a legend of the sport of cycling, a man who has raced motor cars, owned restaurants, held a fly fishing world record, established his own charity and recently received a US Congressional Gold Medal. He's also a man who has recently returned to bike manufacturing, investing in the ever-growing world of e-bikes, Mr. Greg LeMond. Greg, it's great to have you on the show, an absolute honour and privilege. Um, we love to start off these these sort of podcasts by asking you, firstly, where in the world you're joining us from? And secondly, if you used to be looking out the window, what would you see? Joe and James, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. Um, I am in Knoxville, Tennessee. People get it confused with Nashville, which is a uh, country music capital. Mm. Nas- uh, Knoxville's uh, right at the foothills of the Smoky National Park, which is our m- most visited national park in the United States. Uh, great riding here, great road riding, great mountain biking. But I am actually looking out at my uh, parking lot and I'm seeing uh, snow falling. <laughs> so it's, this is wow. not normally this cold. We have an, a, a polar vortex breakaway that's causing freezing temperatures down and snow into Mexico. So it hasn't here, hit here yes, yet, but it is, uh, it's, it's, I think it's 25 degrees uh, Fahrenheit, whatever, four degrees Celsius outside. So it's cold. It's normally, it's more where I'm living right now. It's more like Northern California where I grew up racing and it's uh, good. We'll get some really warm days. Um, kind of like what you have today in London uh, or England. Mm. So we're, we're, uh, it's new for me being living in the Southeast, but we're, we're, it's grown on me. And is that the, is that the Smoky Mountains as in the, the ones where Dolly Parton wrote Tennessee Mountain Home about, et cetera, and the Blue Ridge? Absolutely. She's uh, Dolly, what is it? Dollyville, <laughs> Dollyville, Dolly Garden is about 45 minutes away from us. Yeah. If we're right, 15 minutes from the foothills of the, uh, Smoky National Park, but it's yeah, Blue Ridge Parkway. Actually, that's why I said it's really fantastic riding here. Mm. Um, I never even knew this part of the country, but uh, a lot of rivers, a lot of outdoor acti- activity. But yeah, Dolly Parton's from uh, Eastern Tennessee, right up the road for me. Perfect. So yeah, as as James just mentioned, and and as we've the re- one of the main reason we've got you onto the podcast, besides you being Greg Lamond, of course, is that you've you've returned to bike manufacturing, Greg. Um, but not as we've seen you before, not with road racing bikes. You've got into the world of e-bikes. Uh, you've launched two new urban e-bikes, one called the Prologue, which is like a, a flat handlebar urban utility bike, and then the Dutch, which is called so because of its sort of step-through top tube. 
It comes with integrated lights, built-on mudguards, chunky tyres, and most importantly, an e-bike system. So the question is, Greg, why have you decided now to return to the bike manufacturing sort of business, and, and also why with e-bikes? Well, I think uh, I do have uh, road bike, gravel bikes coming up this year. So um, the e-bikes were really... Um, I've watched the, the market grow. I've watched um, it's you know the explosion of, of urban uh, transportation. Uh, obviously, in Europe, uh, e-bikes have been in Holland. I think been growing for the last ten years. I think it's just about to kick off in the U.S. But our, the two bikes I'm came out with are also targeting the European type market. But I, I guess what I wanted to go. I think when I I was with Trek as a brand, um, they really branded me as this. Um, historical classic rider, which, you know, I love a classic bike, but mm. when I was racing, it was never retro. I wasn't riding a sixties bike or fifties bike. I was riding the most advanced equipment. Course, so yeah. we're trying to, I was, I'm really trying to also broaden the brand to bring more people into cycling. And I think it's really important to kind of, at least my perspective, um, be, um, an approachable brand. That's not for just elite racers. And I think we can use do both. And I, I really believe I, I rode uh, my first electric bike in 2012 or 13. I'm mm. um, one of those hidden motors, <laughs> the hidden motors, <laughs> the road bikes. Yeah. Uh, and it was pretty amazing. And then I rode another kind of city bike, uh, you know, and I, I, I remember I was, I just had, uh, I was in a crash. Um, it was February of uh, January, February of 2013. I broke my back. I uh, was three months in a bed and, uh, no exercise. And about three weeks later, I met this mysterious guy from Hungary and I didn't believe anything about these hidden motors. So, um, the, the Vivax system, am I right? Is well, that, the is Vivax that is started by a guy named Stefano Vargas in supposedly in the nineties. Um, and, uh, some journalist contacted me and said, this is the guy with the hidden motors. And I'm like, come on, that's kind of, can't be true. And so I met him and I, you know, I had his, the saddle was like, we didn't have any tools. I don't know why his saddle was like, two inches too short and I borrowed his shoes or his friend's shoes which were three times too big <laughs> but and I had not ridden my bike and I you know went on this road bike and I remember some American tourists trying to cross the uh, road they could see me from a distance and uh, I was doing about 60 k's an hour <laughs> and wow. they had to step back and I just like oh my gosh it's real mm. so that really disturbed me <laughs> for a lot of reasons at the same time I'm going wow I felt really good on the bike and it's like, I haven't ridden my bike. And I realized even if I was trying to get back in shape, if I was injured, I always think back when I was, after I got shot, how great it would have been to have some, some assist more, more about being able to get out there. And, you know, when you're truly out of shape, yeah. um, this is for the average person to get on a bike is painful. And I think what we all love about cycling, truly what I got when I first started cycling was, you know, it's the, it's the century feeling you get up there with the speed in your eyes, but it's also, I have done a lot of studies on, I used to make a indoor trainer, like a Wahoo I had a revolution and truly inertia is what people love about cycling. The, the rhythm of, of cycling has been proven and it's, it has to do with muscle tension, but it's been proven with the proper inertia. You can actually work out deeper, longer, and I think when everybody gets in shape, I think why the reason people love to get a more expensive bike, a better bike, lighter bike is because the faster you go, the more inertia you have. And I kind of equate it to, 
going out a cheap city bike with flat tires or brake rubbing. And when you do that, it's very painful. It's not fun. So I, I, I really think that what e-bikes could do for people is they could literally make them feel like they're in great shape. And the truth is you work out just as hard on an e-bike as you do a mechanical bike. You just, Absolutely. you go faster. Yeah. And so, um, and I always, I've repeated this story over and over and over to people about e-bike, but I said, it's a secondhand story, but I think it's relevant. And it was a guy named Bob Babbitt. He used to run competitor magazine. He was instrumental in the Ironman, all that growth. Uh, he had a radio, uh, kind of a podcast, like um, in, in mainly focusing on triathlons. Mm. And the story was a woman weighed under 500 pounds, around 500 pounds. And she had a, had medical intervention and she had to get exercising. You know, I don't know if she did a, a gastric bypass, but she could barely walk two or 300 feet and somebody bought her e-bike. And I think three years later, she was, she was doing triathlons. I think she did three triathlons. She weighed 180 pounds and she attributed 100% of her success with the e-bike because she was able to get out there. She was able to have fun. Anybody trying to do a sport to lose weight and be healthy, it can't be indoors. It can't be painful. It's gotta be an adventure. It's gotta be something that hooks you. And that's why I think what I love about cycling is that I've seen, I meet people that watch me race in the eighties. They were addicts or they were addicted to this, addicted to tobacco. And once they got into it, they've been a lifelong cyclist. And mm. so that, I truly believe that's what e-bikes could do for people. On top of that, for commuting, for people who want to go to work, not be, you know, sweaty. Um, although I just, I'd still be sweaty. I'd rather go faster and <laughs> still get the workout. <laughs> you know, this is just one part. I We are working on new manufacturing process and we want to be able to bring great quality valued bikes out there. Not, you know, I'd rather give more customer service, more uh, value uh, than just a lower price, but um you know, I think there's a huge market for, as a business uh, person, there's a huge market for e-bikes. And I think if you want to be relevant, you have to be in e-bikes as a business. Mm. At the same time, we are working on a, I would have had the road bike come out uh, this summer, fall, but we've been perfecting a, a new inner core material that we're going to incorporate our, and all our bikes. Um, the e-bikes, we just didn't have the, the process developed uh, far enough along, but we're, uh, I haven't, I'm not, I don't know if I could talk about it, or I, I could talk about it, we're patenting it, but it, it creates this kind of core structure that, um, that will make a bike almost virtually failure proof um, and as light as any bike out there. So is that, is that through Le Monde Composites, your, your carbon fiber? I was trying to figure out how to make an automated bike, make, control the supply chain for myself. And I came to Knoxville because um, the world's leading material science laboratory is here in Knoxville, Oak Ridge. It's where they enrich uranium for the World War II auto, auto bomb. After that, uh, they became a research uh, facility. Oak Ridge started the Manhattan Project was, I think, 41. It, they came to a, a, a little area out here in Oak Ridge. And because of the, the, the hydraulic power here, uh, that's where they enriched uranium. It went from zero people living in this area to 39,000 people in 18 months. So that's what created Oak Ridge and really was a driving force of the economy here in Knoxville. Since then, their primary goal has been looking at America's energy needs. You know, it's funded by the Department of Energy. And I think in the 70s, during the oil embargo, um, 
the government set out to figure out technologies that lower reliance on foreign oil. And carbon fiber has played a huge role in that. The dream of a low-cost carbon fiber that could be used in automotive has been the, their objective. Hmm. And for 20 years, nobody's been able to figure it out. And uh, I was going on a tour here to look at their new advanced manufacturing facility, which was uh, really more to do with 3D printing, I don't, which is I don't think is a viable way even today for mass production. Uh, while I was on tour, I met a team that had just invented a process that lowers the cost of carbon fiber by 50%, which is massive. Um, believe it or not, it takes it, that 50% drop in price makes it the market open to the automotive, which is 100 times bigger than the current composite market. Mm. Uh, also, wind energy um, is a focus too, and they're cost sensitive. So I was blown away with it, and I tried to figure out you know, I met with the team leader and the team and these are businesses and if they develop and they can go off and start their own company. So we put together company Lamont Carbon, I hired the team and then we got the license um, in 2016. So that's been the focus has been carbon fiber. Originally it was, you know, I thought 2016, 17, I'd be launching my bikes, but um, most of the capital has been going into um, funding that business. But at the same time, over the last four years, I've been able to leverage relationships within the composite industry. And instead of having to reinvent everything, we're pulling ingredients here, part here, and bringing those things together. Um, some of this is the new material that we have, um, some new manufacturing process that we'll, we're working on right now will be more in place on the road bike, gravel bike, and then next year, most of our bikes will be using this new process. So it's been... I'm really excited. I, I would say I've been uh, a wannabe builder of something. I love design. I think of how I would use it, ergonomics, how I want, I mean, kind of a, I do not want something to be complicated to fix, repair, or put together. So I'm trying to bring all those kind of design uh, aspects into our bikes. Hmm. But what I get really excited is some of the new products that I think will be industry game changers in, in the next 12 to 24 months in terms of lightweight, quality. Um, I'm really excited about this new core structure. I got super core structure. I don't even know how to brand it. We're able to, we'll be able to make very narrow profile tubes that I, I still debate this whole theory of right now. I get that 27, 25 millimeter tires maybe roll a little, just, you know, a little bit better, but no matter what aerodynamics, it's, it's a profile that profile of the, if you've got a 19 millimeter tire versus 27, 19 is faster aerodynamically. The problem is you take that narrow tire, you got right behind it, uh, 19, you got a 50 centimeter down tube and a water bottle. Mm -hmm. So that narrow profile of a, a tire means nothing. I looked at my 1989 Botecchi that I won the, the, the Tour de France on. It's two centimeters wide. It is so thin. I would bet you, I'm going to do a narrow, some wind tunnel touching. I'll bet you that bike is as fast as any time trial bike today. So... <clears throat> With our new material, I'm able to make very narrow profiles while at the same time having lateral stiffness. Mm. Uh, when you're building an aero bike, you have, if you want a narrow profile, the strength is on the, so on the vertical axes. If you do the horizontal to get that lateral stiffness, you have to overweight the frame to have that stiffness. We get to, we, our process will allow us to be very narrow, very light tubes with lateral stiffness. And so that's what I'm really excited. We will have a prototype. I mean, a product pre-production prototype sometime April, but production probably June, July. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, that would be incorporating almost all our bikes um, in the future. But I have, you know, I'm looking at, there's a lifestyle brand, e-bikes that we're trying to brand at the same time. I, I, my heritage is road, pricing, road riding. And I, I definitely think by having your bikes in the Tour de France, having them at highest level, really drives innovation. And um, so that part still going to be there. It's, mm. We did launch the e-bikes for a purpose because I wanted to expand the, my brand to a, a broader audience, not really focused just purely on the diehard road, road cyclist. I, want, I said, I think there's an opportunity out there to be not a mass produced unknown brand that is making stuff, you know, assembling, you know, from China, Asia, whatever that means, components from everywhere. A lot of like the, the new startups you see, Cowboy, Venbuff, they're assembled, you know, they're very low quality bikes. I think there's a market there that has, that could be appreciate real innovation, real quality um, with uh, the right value. And I think, um, I think that's what an opportunity we have as, as a company. And this is really from the ground up. I'm involved on every centimeter of the design of the bikes um, to testing right now. We're testing different tube shapes with the different configurations. Uh, so this is not a licensing deal. And that's what I get excited about. This is, you know, I get to make a decision and it gets to be put in, into production or testing. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's, it might be worth highlighting for, um, for some listeners that it's not just like you're one of the greatest ex-professionals um, uh, the sport has ever seen now, make, <laughs> now making bikes. I, I don't know about that. Well, I, I don't know. I'd say I reckon me and Joe could argue the toss on that one. <laughs> pretty illustrious career but it's not like you're you're going oh i'm gonna now make bikes and i might even be more involved than just your average i'll stick my name on the down tube and pay me some royalties but you've been at the tech side at the coalface as it were uh since the 80s um and within that you know designing bikes and at certain times um you had a bike company effectively uh that was going to provide bikes for teams you were you found yourself racing on uh, I think I read a quote from you somewhere that you really didn't like those bikes in 1985 that Bernard Hino had his name <laughs> on the down tube. They were steel bikes. And you thought, I can do this better. And I've heard of carbon fiber. And you've been working in this stuff for decades, almost you know, longer than your professional career, which started in 81. Is that right? And, and you retired in 95. So when you introduce yourself to people or just kind of if you had to write a CV and apply for a job, what are you? Are you? Are you? An I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But I guess I'm. I'm a person with that's open to new ideas, curious. I do a lot of research. Even when I was, you know, started writing, I didn't have real. There were no coaches at the time. I read running books. I read anything I could get. But I also I have a. Um, I'm curious. I have. Uh, I look. I'm a skeptic too. So I kind of try to vet things. But I think, I, I all this deal. Oh. I'm, I, I do keep reading most innovative cyclists ever. I, the truth is I could recognize innovative stuff and I was able to see, I would say that typically a pro team was approached by these little tinkers that have some great ideas. They would just push them, brush them off. Like, don't bother me. And I'm telling you almost every great product that I've had come to me has always been done, not by some big corporation. It's been done by individual inventors, people who have a passion for what they're doing. They see a need that's missing. I say Oakley's a great story where Jim Gennard didn't invent that glass, the eyeglass. That's what he, the claim is. Uh, Cause I was there right at the very beginning. 
you know, I saw the very first prototype wart, but it was an, a motocross rider that had a, a pair of Oakley goggles. And he literally took the Oakley, go Oakley goggles out, put some nose rubber, rubber bones in, in arms. He presented to Oakley. And that's where, that's where the story I was told at the, from the horse's mouth, mouth in 1984-85. So when you look at that, that created the most successful sporting glass company in the world. I mean, I think Did they stay? six years later, they were flying jets. They were making so much money. <laughs> but that was not invented in-house. That was invented by some third party. I would say Jiro Helmets, too. And actually, I had a very important role in that one because uh, Jim Gentis, who was the you know, founder of that company, Although it should have been Greg and Jim, uh, he had raced with me as a cyclist. He dated my sister for a little period, but he went to work for Blackburn as industrial designer. And he had made a copy of my 84 Tour de France, um, 85 Chanelli um, helmet, aerodynamic helmet. At the time, triathlons were real popular, and he thought this is a, a helmet that he might have some success in triathlons. So he came to me with a very long aero teardrop helmet all styrofoam but it it was so thick and heavy because it had to pass the anti-snail safety test at the time mm. and i just told him i don't care what you pay me i'm not going to wear that <laughs> it's hot it's too heavy and i had literally bought my son jeffrey a baby bell helmet at target that weighed nothing and it had anti-snail this is kind of how ideas come and people create products and then we're sitting in my living room i go well, what if you made it like a hairnet? And we drew on it with a black mark and we said, okay, here's some air vents here, air vents here. If you make that, I will wear it. And he came back three months later with a prototype and I wore it in the Tour de France in 86. And I think he had 40,000 orders within a month or two of that. And it's just kind of weird how that started, but that's really how things start. And I, I think of even TBT, um, the first, there were carbon fiber bikes made prior to me winning the 86 Tour de France on it. There were, yeah. I remember uh, Pascal Simon had uh, V2s, I think with Hercules made a, a carbon fiber similar to TVT. And he rode it in uh, a stage going into Le Mans and uh, it collapsed on him. And I think that put, that put the death of anybody attempting to ride a carbon fiber bike. You can't take risks like that in, in, a, in a pro race. Yeah. But the problem was the bonding between the tube and the aluminum. So you had carbon fiber mandrel woven uh, tubes, and then it was bonding into an aluminum lug that was coming apart. So Jean-Marc, I've got to pronounce his name, Gagneau, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name properly, but he was an engineer that worked for a small company called TVT, and he had figured out a bonding process that bonded the aluminum to the carbon fiber tube properly. He came to us in 1986 to La at training camp in Bessege with the bike. And I know that some of the people are just like, don't even bother. But both he and I went out there. I talked to him. I said, like, I'll try it. And we rode it, rode great. And he mm -hmm. then he explained the bonding process. And so they worked, Jean-Marc went back and made us um, carbon fiber bikes for that 86 Tour de France. And, you know, that was my first real racing on a carbon fiber bike won the Tour de France. And I realized at that point, you know, a pound or two on a bike is, you know, you could calculate a kilo is like a minute and a half at the top of Lab to us. There's, there's no, there's no going back. No going you... back. So I started my bike company just literally after 86 tour, because I decided no way am I going to be a prisoner to whoever's sponsoring that team. But, you know, if it's, you know, Huffy or 
trek, if it's going to be a heavy steel bike, uh, I wanted the freedom to pick and choose whatever is the best product out there. And as you, once you win the Tour de France, in theory, you get some privileges of, I call it imposing your, your, your demands onto a team if you're negotiating your contract. And one of those was for me to impose that I want to ride a Le Mans branded bike. I don't care if the team did, I would want one, ride it, because I want to select the very best technology out there. It wasn't me actually inventing it, but I wanted to have that option not to be imprisoned by whatever the sponsors, um, uh, you know, furnishing to the team. Fortunately, after that, uh, I was in that battle with Tapping Hino and Tapping just basically, the only thing I asked for when I was free to leave, I only asked for my own Masur Swanier, which his name was Otto Jacome, because I wanted somebody I could trust mm. uh, to take care of my water bottles and everything. They refused to even do that. So the idea of getting my bikes on 87 was a no-go. Mm. Anyways, and I was shot in a hunting accident a year later. Um, but when I came, and I didn't have any choice to ride, <laughs> I think it was PDM, whatever their bikes, I can't remember what the bikes were riding. And then ADR, I had not had really, couldn't impose anything on the team. Then I won 89. <laughs> I still used actually TVT, Le Mans Geometry, everything in 89, which... I won the Tour de France on that. And then the following year, I was able to impose myself on, on the Team Z. And we rode Le Mans bikes until uh, 94, until I retired. And mm -hmm. so in 1991, I was approached by a name, guy named Craig Calfee. So here's another guy from California in Santa Cruz. Not Trek, not any big company. Now, Kestrel had some really, Kestrel developed some really good products late 80s. But still, here's an individual, Santa Cruz. He came to me with a full carbon fiber bike. Um, prior to that, it's aluminum lugs, carbon fiber tubes. Now this is a full first full carbon fiber bike and stiff, great riding bike. And um, we ended up, he ended up making bikes in 91 for uh, my Tour de France. And I had, that point I used, was using titanium bolts. I had a bike that weighed 15.5 pounds wow. at that time, which is basically just a little bit over the legal limit today. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't race as well as I'd hoped that year. I still got seventh, but um, for that point, it didn't matter what light, how light the bike was. I wasn't racing well <laughs> after that. <laughs> yeah. But we ended up licensing the technology from him. We made bikes for about a year and a half in Reno, Nevada, until we figured out it was just, at that time, the labor cost, the market just wasn't going to buy and pay uh, the price we needed to um, make margin on that. And they ended up going back to Craig Calfee. Uh, but there's another example that it was some individual... Uh, guy that uh, came up with a great product, great idea. And so that's how things get. And I didn't, I, same with the, the triathlon bar. I didn't invent that, but I saw, I saw it on a race in the Tour de Crump and I saw Finney, um, Davis Finney, who's got an upright riding position, mm. you know, like a sprinter. And I saw him go by on a time trial, very aerodynamic. And I've gone, wow, what was that? <laughs> and I, I saw they had these uh, new aero tri bars and um, I said to myself, if I ever get riding well again, I'm going to find those bars. And after I got second in the Giro d'Italia uh, time trial in 89, I felt really almost back to myself uh, and I reached out to him and he delivered him, I think the day before the Tour de France. And that's, I used those to win the Tour. So I, the one, one last thing I think about in innovation, I was fortunate when I turned pro in 81 with Cyril Guimard. Because what if you look back, and this is kind of where I, I, I kind of smile when uh, Finyan or Hino, I mean, Finyan or Guimard talk about the advantages 
you know, I'd had an unfair advantage. Maybe I did, but if you go back, I could show you photo after photo of super aero equipment that Guimard and Finyon were riding on. And we had aero twos back in 1981. You, the deep dish carbon fiber wheels that you see there, Renault had them in 82 and 83. They weighed a lot, but uh, that was probably, I realized the importance of aerodynamics at that point. Even when I got my position changed with um, Guimard, the primary thing was setting, positioning a rider that was aerodynamic, ergonomic, ergonomically correct because the wind drag with a different position, upright position is massive. You can have all the equipment, aerodynamic equipment, but if you're, you're riding with your, not aerodynamic, you're, you're, you're wasting all the, all that expensive uh, aerodynamic equipment. Yeah. So I, I was really fortunate to be, have a really good influence with innovative people around me too. People who thought outside the box. Well, I mean, it also helped that you were so open because your competitors at the time, your contemporaries, your Hinos and Fignons and Moses, they would have had access to this. But what helped was that you had an open mind and you were willing to say, I'll, I'll try it. If it's, you know, I'll, I'll try it. If I don't like it, then I don't have to use it. But it shows testament to that today, everyone still races a time trial with a rear disc. And that was a, a first from you. Everybody's on tri-bars in time trials. Everybody's still racing on in aero helmets, Oakley sunglasses and full carbon fiber bikes, which was all stuff that you had the confidence to experiment with in the 80s while others didn't. Yeah, I think I think it's coming from an American perspective too, or at least my perspective. I wasn't coming to the sport that had years of tradition. And there's great things about tradition. You know, it's tried and true, but there's some disadvantage because you're stuck, get stuck in the past. Yeah. And, but I think, you know, in cycling, there's not a lot of time for other people to, as a race, you don't think a lot of us. I'm just, I was a little bit different outside the, uh, within the team. I always had to have my own room. I would go to sleep at 12 or midnight, not 10 o'clock. And, but it's my mind. I kind of think of, I do a lot of thinking and maybe daydreaming, but it's, I think it is coming from a non-traditional background and, um, and coming into it with an open mind. Uh, mm. Although I say that there's even in America, I mean, there's, you know, it's so easy to dismiss people. And I think the worst part is if you, you just get stuck on, if you're not open to exploring new ideas, new ways of thinking, you're never going to advance. And I think that was a big advantage. And I, I say that it does play out all the way through my career after that, because I've had opportunities for either being in a business or products, um, that were brought to me and you know it's, I'm, i see the value of it i say i think of apple and Stephen jobs uh i don't like the way he says he says he's still you don't have to reinvent everything you just have to steal it that was a famous quote but that's not what i'm thinking of but it is hard to reinvent something almost every great innovation and in design is a morphing of already something exists but it's being able to see the value of that and and adopt that. And I think that's where um, people who design great products come up with great ideas. Even, you know, they're, they're influenced by other great designers. And if you look at even Silicon Valley and all the technology, it's not like it's these companies, you know, Facebook and all these, there's, there's always a seed of something else in technology that is the forerunner to their own company. So it's, it's not like some, it's very rarely that there's some massive breakthrough, um, uh, all by itself. 
And so, and I, I'm, I think that's my, I mean, I'm in the carbon fiber business and to believe it or not, I mean, we have another license from Australia, which is a different technology from Oak Ridge. We are able to oxidize uh, carbon fiber. So when you make carbon fiber, you take an acrylonitrol, which is a byproduct petroleum. And I know it doesn't sound green, but our technology truly is a net green uh, technology. The Oak Ridge process, we take a commodity price raw material. It's an acrylic textile. It's what you make sweaters out of. Mm. And they, it's kind of like you're a chef. You bake it, you stretch it. And this one, you load a whole bunch of fiber onto the production line. And because the raw material they call precursors low cost, that's really a driving force in the lower cost of the carbon fiber. Plus the volume output is um, quite a bit more what this new technology is, and it's truly came from being in the car fiber business with Oak Ridge and our team calling another team. Mm. And there's only two research laboratories that have semi-industrial carbon fiber lines. One is in Oak Ridge, one is at Deakin University, uh, Australia. And we had just announced that we had secured the license for this new breakthrough technology. And when my team called them, they said, oh, you did that. Well, we just did this. And literally two in six months, two breakthroughs, two of the biggest breakthroughs in carbon fiber in 60 years. So we ended up licensing that um, product exclusive for 20 years. And with the same materials that any other carbon fiber manufacturer out there, we can take the oxidation that takes 90 minutes before you put it through the furnace to carbonize it. We do it 15 minutes. Mm. So for the same CapEx, we produce four times the amount of carbon fiber. And we think we could bring this technology and use it on this textile low-cost fiber. So we, we should be able to get savings well over 50%. Mm. But we are right now with the same technology, we're at 30% less um, than Torre and Mitsubishi, any of these companies. It has been very difficult to raise money for it because we've raised a lot of money. It's a big chunk of change uh, to raise. And we're still, we're, we're pretty confident we'll get that funding uh, uh, by the end of this year. But it's we're trying to raise about eighty million dollars. But this is a multi-billion-dollar opportunity that uh, I never thought I'd ever be in, in part of. So, and I, I only say that because if I was anybody else, they probably looked at and they wouldn't even thought past. Oh, that's cool. So that was the end of part one with Greg Lamond. Join Greg, James, and I in part two as we discuss Lamond's career, his rivalries with Fignon and Hino the current pro peloton and his concerns over mechanical doping.